Unlike today, when someone is executed, when capital punishment is carried out, in most societies, they try to be as merciful as possible, to be as humane as possible in carrying this out. That was not the intention of crucifixion. It was designed to be painful, designed to be torturous, designed to inflict maximum pain. So why then did the soldiers offer Jesus a narcotic drink? These guys were not merciful. You already know that, that there was no mercy in their bones. You know what they did to him, as we studied last week, and they beat him and mocked him. These were not men of compassion. We'll learn today on Verse by Verse not only why the soldiers offered that drink to Jesus at his crucifixion, we will also discover why he refused it. The Gospel writers recorded many events that needed no explanation in their day. But in our day and age, we need to learn some background in order to understand their significance. Pastor Steve Kreloff has been teaching from Mark chapter 15 about why people reject Jesus. And now we are making the journey with Jesus from his trial to the hill called Golgotha. Our lesson is a continuation of a message Pastor Steve began in our last class. Paul expressed in Philippians 3.10 his desire to experience the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. As we suffer from time to time, we can be comforted in that fellowship. Now to learn more about his sufferings on our behalf, here's Pastor Steve. Jesus was crucified on a hill that looked like a skull. Some people say, well, Jesus was crucified on a place where they had a lot of, a, a lot of skulls around there. No, that, that's not true. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not the case. Uh, the, the Romans would have, would have not done that because the Jewish people would feel that's a defiled place. That'd be a grave site. And they, Jews didn't even walk on that, on those places. So no, it was a place of a skull. It looked like a skull. I've been to the place that many people believe to be Golgotha, and you can. You can see the shape of a, of a human skull in the rock formation. Uh, it's interesting to note that uh, on top of that place is an Arab cemetery, and on the bottom is an Arab bus station. It really is. That's right. You say, is there no place sacred? There is a bus station right on the bottom, and on the top of the hill is an Arab cemetery. And right near it is a garden tomb like the scriptures teach. Very close. We had communion at the garden tomb, and then we walked maybe uh, 100, 200 feet to look at Golgotha. It was a moving experience, and I remember just staring at that, that spot and thinking that this is where it all took place. This is where heaven and earth met and had that great transaction. Very moving experience, and you can very clearly see the skull in that, in that place. Now, the place of Christ's death, was that really significant? Is that important? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And that's why Mark tells us about this. According to Numbers chapter 15, verse 35, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, Numbers 15.35 says that criminals under the Mosaic law were to be executed outside the camp, which is another way of saying outside the city, camp or city, wherever the people were. Remember, Numbers was written while they were in the wilderness, and they literally camped in the wilderness. So a criminal was taken outside the city to be executed. So the place of Christ's death was significant. Golgotha was outside the city. Of course, today it's inside the city because Jerusalem has, has grown tremendously. But in that, in that day, it was outside the city. Why is that significant? Will you turn to Hebrews chapter 13? And let me give you the theological ramifications of that. We sometimes read the scriptures and we don't realize these things. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, the writer says this, 
Therefore, Jesus also, Hebrews 13, the last chapter, verse 12, therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate or outside the camp. Now, stay at Hebrews 13. Stay there. In other words, Jesus died as a common criminal. He died as a common criminal, rejected by his own people. He came into his own, his own refused him. They didn't receive him. But notice, notice what the writer to the Hebrews does. He says, Jesus was rejected, he was crucified like a common criminal outside the city. That's, that's the importance of this statement. Notice verse 13. Hence, here's the application. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp or outside the city bearing his reproach. In other words, he died as a common criminal. Let's follow him and let's not be afraid of being rejected. Let's identify with this crucified one. He's speaking to Jewish people, the writer to the Hebrews is, who feared persecution and rejection by their own people. And he's challenging them and he's challenging us by way of application to join Jesus outside the camp. Take your stand with a despised Messiah, regardless of the consequences. He's calling us to leave our traditions, leave our religion, religious traditions, leave our religious system and be identified with Jesus Christ in his rejection. Bear the shame, bear the rejection, bear the reproach. You see, Golgotha is more than simply a place. It's the place of rejection. It's the place of disgrace. It is the place of shame as far as the world how they perceive it. If you are going to become a Christian, if you are going to be a committed Christian, then you need to take your stand with a despised Messiah, a despised Lord, despised Christ, not a popular Jesus that is preached today, not one that, uh, that makes everybody feel happy and heals everybody and everything is wonderful. No, you take your stand with one who is despised by the world. When the world understands the true message, when they think Jesus is just a cosmic genie to give them everything they want, they say, hey, that's great. But when they understand who he really is and what he really was doing at Golgotha and the real truth about Christ, they don't want to hear that. In fact, isn't this what, uh, what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8? He said, if you follow me, take up your cross. Follow me. Take your stands. Lay your life down. Come and be my disciple and, and don't be ashamed of me. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Christ. You have to keep that in mind. And, these, and in the context of Hebrews, these Jewish people uh, were really faltering. They said, but if we become believers, then we'll be put out of the synagogue. Right, you will. We'll be excommunicated out of our whole social life. Right, you will. And the writer keeps saying, come on, come, come. Press forward. Press forward. Come and take your stand with him outside the camp. Despised. Lord. So the procession to Golgotha is significant in two ways. Number one, Simon of Cyrene was converted. If he wasn't converted at that moment, it would appear that he was converted sometime shortly after that, and you put it together, it only makes sense that that was the tremendous, that, that made a tremendous impression upon him. Secondly, Golgotha is the place of rejection to which we are called. We are not called to be the most popular. We are called, if you take your stand with Jesus, you will be rejected. And you will bear his reproach. The second event of significance is the refusal to drink wine. Verse 23, as we go back to Mark 15, verse 23. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. He did not take it. Before crucifying Jesus, the soldiers offered him a drink of wine mixed with myrrh. This was really a, a narcotic 
It's a narcotic drink that was given to people about to be executed, especially those who would be executed by the torture of crucifixion. Now, according to rabbinical writings, we have no reason to doubt this. Wealthy Jewish women would prepare this, these narcotic drinks in order to ease the pain of those about to be crucified, and they were simply following what Proverbs 31.6 says, give strong drink to him who is perishing. If someone is perishing, it's all right to give them alcoholic, narcotic beverages, just like the medical world does today. You give a heavy drug to somebody who is about to die, so you could ease their pain. However, I want you to know that may have been the, the women's... Um, motivation to ease the pain of someone who would die. That was not the Roman soldier's motivation. Understand this. Unlike today, when, when someone is executed today and capital punishment is carried out, in most societies they try to, to be as merciful as possible, to be as humane as, as possible in carrying this out. That was not the intention of crucifixion. It was designed to be painful, designed to be torturous, designed to inflict maximum pain. So why then did the soldiers offer Jesus a narcotic drink? You know why? They didn't want him struggling. It was for them, not, not him. They, these guys were not merciful. You already know that, that there was no mercy in their bones. You know what they did to him as we studied last week, and they beat him and mocked him. These were not men of compassion. No, it was to make their job easier. The reason they wanted Jesus to drink was to stupefy him, to keep him from struggling violently as the nails were driven into his wrists and into his feet. That's why. They did this to everybody. However, unlike everybody else, Jesus refused the drink. And the question is why? Why? Uh, it would have made it easier for him, would have sort of knocked him out, would have eased the pain, would have dulled his mind. Why? It's because he wanted his mind to be clear when he spoke from the cross and he said a number of things from the cross and he wanted to endure the full measure of pain both physically and spiritually. It's the answer. In other words, there were no shortcuts in his sufferings for us. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the maximum pain, both spiritually and physically, and there were no shortcuts. He, he fully experienced all the wrath that the Father had. He fully experienced it, in complete control of his faculties, without any artificial help. On a number of occasions, Jesus had, had spoken of drinking the cup. Remember that? Remember when John and James said, Lord, we'd like to be on your left side, one on your right side in the kingdom. And Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? He often referred to his death as drinking the cup. Now we understand more of what he meant. What he meant is that he would drink the cup to the very last drop. No shortcuts. He would drink it fully. You know, when I read this, I, I just had to stop studying because I was so um, just amazed by this. I have never seen the servanthood of Jesus like I, I saw it this week. Even in the most excruciating of times, Jesus is still thinking of others. He's thinking of you, thinking of those around him. He wanted to minister, and he did minister to them. He spoke from the cross. One of the things he said from the cross... He said to John, his, the Apostle John, John, behold your mother, meaning Mary. In other words, John, I'm going to die, you take care of Mary. Mary, behold your son. Not meaning look at me, look at John, he'll take care of you. Even while on the cross, Jesus thought about others. He's still making plans for his, for his mother to be provided for. That's amazing. He also is witnessing to the, uh, to the thief on the cross. He said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. 
I mean, I think that's just amazing that Jesus Christ, even in the midst of, of the most intense sufferings, refuses to take the drink so he can minister to others. Listen, that is servanthood. That is the ultimate of servanthood. And, and bearing the full weight of sin. Now, do you understand what Philippians 2 is talking about? The depths of Philippians 2? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Exactly what Jesus did. He said, listen, it's more important for me to minister. It's more important for me to say these things. It's more important for me to bear the full weight of sin and not have anybody think that I took a shortcut. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then Paul brings it all into focus. He says, have this attitude or this mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. He said, this is the way Jesus lived and died, who although he existed in the form of God, that is to say he's God, for eternity he existed in the form of God, which is spirit. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is to say, he didn't hold on to that form and say, I'm not going, I'm not going. You're not going to get me on the earth, no. It says, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of that form. Taking, now another form, the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He became a bondservant. To who? To us. Made in the likeness of men. And watch this. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's servanthood. That's servanthood. And that speaks loud and very clearly to us. This is what servanthood and obedience is all about. Servanthood is when it costs you something. Anybody can do something for someone else when it's when it doesn't cost them anything or when it's convenient. Servanthood is when it's not convenient. Servanthood is when it goes against your own personal feelings and you lay down your life for others. And I'm not talking about just necessarily physically laying down your life for others, but laying down your life in the sense of serving them. Sometimes it is relatively easier to to die for someone than to live for them, to live to serve them. That's what the cross tells us. Christ bore the full weight of sin and he ministered to those people and he didn't want his mind clouded. Thinking of others when anybody else would have been thinking of themselves. Now we move to a third event and that is the crucifixion itself. Verse 24. Just the beginning says this, and they crucified him. You know, you read that and you say, is that it? Is that all Mark is going to tell us? They crucified him? This is incredible restrained simplicity. Mark says, and they crucified him. This is the crowning key event of all eternity. You realize that? He died for our sins. But Mark just says, and they crucified him. None of the gospel writers describe the ordeal of crucifixion. They don't go into the physical agonies. You know why? First of all, it wasn't their purpose to focus on the physical pain of this procedure. The most important part of, of the crucifixion was that the father turned his, his back on the son. There was no fellowship. Um, many thousands of people were crucified. Many thousands of men were crucified. Jesus was not the only one to be crucified. So it's not the physical uh, ordeal that, that the gospel writers want to stress. It was the spiritual or, ordeal. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turned away from Christ, his son. No fellowship, because at that moment, Jesus was tasting hell for us. So the gospel writers don't want to focus on the physical uh, pain and procedure. They also don't want to arouse our pity. They don't want to arouse our pity, because they don't want simply an emotional response. Besides, Mark's readers knew fully about crucifixion. They didn't need anybody to explain it to them. 
This is how Rome executed most of its uh, criminals and its slaves. But I want to explain to you about crucifixion because we were not there. And you should know a little bit about the ordeal of what Jesus went through. Crucifixion originated not with the Romans, but with the Persians, interestingly enough, with the Persians. And, and this is the reason. They believed that the earth was sacred. Therefore, they executed their criminals by raising them from the earth in order to not defile the earth. Now, they had a sort of a crude way to do it. They put them on a large pole and just left them there to die. Other groups then picked up on this, and the Romans eventually sort of made a science of it. And the Romans embraced this form of execution so extensively that crucifixion came to be uh, identified with Rome. At the time of Christ, you know how many, it's estimated how many men Rome had crucified in Israel alone? 30,000 men in Israel alone. So that's why I say that, that many had died like that, but no one liked Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God and he was paying the full price of our sin. Unlike modern execution, which I told you before, is designed to be quick and, and humane, crucifixion is intended to be slow and torturous and humiliating. I quoted from a doctor last week, a Dr. C. Truman Davis, a medical doctor, uh, about what it meant to be scourged. I'm going to quote now of what it means and what it meant to be crucified. Not a pretty picture. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action. Being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex, uh, flexion or flexibility and movement, the beam is then lifted in place at the top of the post and the title reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching uh, torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the inner intercoastal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of, and Jesus, by the way, was on the cross for six hours. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another, then another agony begins a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills up with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood to stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasps, I thirst. 
He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That was crucifixion. That was crucifixion. Horrible. Crucifixion was the most horribly degrading punishment possible. It is very possible, and I'm not sure that uh, that they crucified uh, these men naked. Some writers say, no, the Romans wouldn't have done that. I don't see the Romans as particularly real sensitive guys. It's very possible. It's very possible he had some type of a, a loin covering, but that would be the ultimate of shame for a Jewish man. Cicero, the famous Roman orator, called crucifixion, and I quote, the most cruel and disgusting penalty. He said this, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the, uh, from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thought, his eyes, his ears. Roman citizens were not crucified. That was a slave's execution. That was a criminal's execution. So Cicero was saying, a Roman ought not to even think about it. Don't, don't even talk about the cross. It's so disgusting. Now, how did the world of Christ Day view crucifixion? How did the world in general, apart from man like Cicero, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This will tell you something that's very, very interesting and, and certainly applicable for us. How did the world of that day look upon crucifixion? They were familiar with it. Chapter 1 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, this is, this is right after the book of Romans, verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing, what? Foolishness. Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of, of God. Then notice verse 23, and, and stay in 1 Corinthians for a while. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, to the Jewish people, it's a stumbling block. They trip over it. Can't get over this. And to Gentiles, it's absolute nonsense. It's foolishness. The Jewish people stumbled over Christ's death by crucifixion. You know why? They said, Messiah couldn't be crucified. How could that ever be? Tucked away in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21-23, is a little verse that says, Cursed is everyone that hangs from a tree. It said, if, you, if you're hung on a tree, and they mean to die, then you are cursed by God. Now here we come along, and Paul said, here, here in the first century we come along and we say, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord Almighty, was actually cursed by God, and they say impossible. 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 The Messiah cannot be cursed of God. And so they dismiss it as complete foolishness. And they stumbled over it and they couldn't get over it. It's a, it's a rock of offense. It offended them that, that we would preach, or anyone would preach, the Messiah would be cursed of God. But of course, Jesus had to be cursed by God. That was his plan all along, to take the curse that should have been ours upon himself. Jesus did not come to earth to save people from political oppression. He came to save us from the power and penalty of our own sin. Pastor Steve Kreloff will conclude this three-part message on the crucifixion on the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These daily radio Bible classes are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. Pastor Steve would like to share some thoughts now about why you might want to become involved in this ministry. I'm Pastor Steve Kreloff with a special message about why people like you choose to support Verse by Verse with their prayers and financial gifts. It's my hope that you're encouraged in your faith and strengthened spiritually through the teaching you hear on Verse by Verse. 
If you've been blessed through verse by verse, please consider supporting this ministry with prayer and your financial gifts. You can call 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714. Or drop us a line at P.O. Box 5884, Clearwater, Florida, 33758. That's P.O. Box 5884, Clearwater, Florida, 33758. Thank you. You can learn more about Verse by Verse Ministries at our website, Verse by Verse Radio, all one word, dot O-R-G. To order a CD or cassette with this entire three-part message, call us at 727-239-0306. Leave your name and phone number and we will return your call during regular business hours. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said that he preached Christ crucified, which was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. We will see what it was that both Jews and Gentiles never thought about on the next Verse by Verse. Verse by Verse.